Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. My team and I are really excited to bring this episode to you because it illustrates so much of what we try to do, and that is to inform, educate, commemorate, and even entertain. Part of that includes preserving history from those that make it. So you'll get all of that and so much more in the next few episodes, which feature my guest, Commander Corey Gleason of the Royal Canadian Navy. We were privileged to conduct this interview in 2021, when Commander Gleason was the commanding officer of HMCS Harry DeWolf, Canada's first Arctic and offshore patrol vessel. Commander Gleason was the first commanding officer of HMCS Harry DeWolf, and we had our chat on board the ship and in the captain's quarters after it arrived in Victoria, British Columbia, which was one of its many stops as part of its inaugural deployment, which had the ship circumnavigate North America. The first-of-class deployment of HMCS Harry DeWolf marked many notable events, and high among them was the first time in decades where a Royal Canadian Navy ship transited the Northwest Passage, and in this case, from east to west. In this episode, you'll hear about Commander Gleason's motivation to serve, some of his career highlights, and you'll hear about his leadership style. You'll also hear about the genesis of the Arctic and Offshore Patrol Ship Program in Canada, and aspects of the class that make it an impressive new addition to the Royal Canadian Navy. We are publishing this episode today to mark the Grey Cup in Canada, and we are doing so because HMCS Harry DeWolf escorted the Grey Cup trophy from Toronto to Hamilton, Ontario, where the big game is being held. I really hope you enjoy these next few episodes because you'll hear all about a new class of Navy ship and you'll hear about historic firsts. You'll hear about ship design and capabilities, Arctic sovereignty, climate change, Indigenous engagement and collaboration, and so much more. And you'll hear it all from a highly respected, highly experienced, and thoughtful man. Our guest, Commander Corey Gleason of the Royal Canadian Navy. Before we begin, here are a few words about Talus Canada, who helped bring you this episode in more ways than one. Wherever safety and security are critical, Talus delivers. Talus today provides solutions to some of the Canadian Armed Forces' most complex challenges. Talus is Canada's leading provider of naval in service support sustaining more than 100 of the Royal Canadian Navy's ships. That includes the refit, repair, maintenance, and training for the Navy's Arctic and offshore patrol ships and joint support ships. It's a one-of-a-kind relational contract known as Aegis. Through Aegis, Talus is helping to create thousands of jobs, drive Canadian innovation, and build a new Canadian supply chain. Together with Canadians and for Canadians, Talus is helping to ensure the Navy's ships are mission-ready, on time, every time. This includes HMCS Harry DeWolf, the captain and crew, which Talus supported on their epic journey around North America in 2021, which is what you'll hear about in these next few episodes. So, welcome everyone to Go Bold, and here's just a quick note to say that the sound of our conversation will improve after the first minute. Let's cue the music and welcome our guest.
everybody. Welcome to Go Bold. Today is a very special episode because this is the first time that I've had the honor and privilege to be aboard HMCS Harry DeWolf. And I'm sitting next to the captain, Commander Corey Gleason, who has the privilege and distinction to be the, the first commanding officer of the first Arctic offshore patrol vessel. Yeah, you said it. It's a real honor. Yeah, it really it's... is to be the first uh, captain, the first of class, and get the uh, so significant uh, trust from the leadership to uh, just put it in your hands and uh, say, Corey, lead us to uh, to the finish line. Well, you're halfway there. We are halfway there. <laughs> We're going to go through the Panama Canal and make it all the way to Halifax and we'll be done. Right on. Well, Commander Gleason, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you, sir. So, Commander Gleason, the way I usually start these podcasts is I ask all of my guests, what made you join the military? Mm -hmm. And uh, why did you pick the branch that you did? Yeah, um, well, I I grew up in Welland, Ontario at a time that um, everybody worked in steel factories and surrounding factories that supported those factories. and um, the industry was really going in a slump, and there was lots and lots of layoffs. So living in a town like that, um, where uh, unemployment uh, became a real, uh, a real, real issue for for the city, um, and you know, most people graduated from high school. Uh, at least you know, my uncles and aunts, and they they ended up in the steel uh, mill industry. Um, and uh, my father was working at uh, uh, Stell Pipe, they called it, Stelco Pipe and Tube. Um, and uh, he was fortunate enough to be hired at a point in time that there was, uh, the industry was really taking a dip. So good for our family, but uh, not really good to live in a place that had, um, not, not for a young man, not, not much of a future there. And um, my cousin, um, who had some personal issues as a youth, um, you know, they used to joke back in the day that uh, you either go to jail or you uh, you join the military. Right. I, I think that was pretty, pretty. That was the case for my cousin. And I won't say his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But uh, sure. um, he 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 was really um, in a, in a strange place in his life, and uh, he got the opportunity to be recruited or or face uh, um, face charges and carry on down a path that probably would have left him in a pretty bad spot. So he joined the Navy, and when he joined the Navy, he would come back at Christmas time and things like that in his uniform, and we were all very excited to see him because uh, we hadn't seen him for a while, and my family was quite large, but quite you know quite a tight group of people, and um, and when somebody left, uh, um, people noticed in the, in the family, and when they came back, and he had lots of great stories to tell, um, sailor stories, um, and it really captured a person's imagination, and uh, so it was, my father was a professional musician, Okay. And uh, uh, when I was a kid in high school, I figured, well, I'm going to be a rock star, of course. Um, and I played in a band and uh, did, did, did a bunch of things. And there, there was a point in time in my life that I realized, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're good enough to play in bars and things like that, but you're really not that good. Um, <laughs> uh, like, and when I mean that good, I mean, you know, that good to really make a significant living at it. And uh, having a father who's a professional musician, you're surrounded by musicians who didn't make it. Right. right? And right. you got a real good glimpse of what that looks like. Sure. And I didn't like what that looked like, right. um, particularly the ones that were still holding on, that were you know in their in their fifties and in sixties still playing in bars and things like that. And uh, they're friends of my dad, so yeah. you know when they would roll into town, my dad would go and visit with them, and I would go with them and hang out, and because uh, we were passionate about music anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, just just to say that uh, there wasn't much of a future in the steel industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, rock star was out of the question; it wasn't in my cards. 
And uh, my cousin really uh, told some great stories about the Navy. And uh, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm, I think I'm going to go down that road. And so I, you recruited at the, our recruiting center was in St. Catharines, Ontario, where I was born. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, went to the recruiting center. It took a long time to go through the process of being selected and being brought in. It took at least, I think, about a year, oh, wow. which is um, which I think is still a bit of an issue for our recruiting programs to this date. I know that there's um, we have some young people that are trying to, to move over from the primary reserves to the regular force, and, mm. and that's taking anywhere between six months to a year to get an offer and then carry on. Wow. So it took about a year to get in, and then when I signed up on the dotted line, I found that I wasn't necessarily signing up for what I thought I was signing up for. Um, there's a bit of a curveball where they presented me with a, an offer but it was a one-year offer. Oh, yeah, and it was an old program that uh, was uh, that was generated by the federal government. It was called the Youth Training Employment Program. Okay. And it was YTEP. Is that was the acronym that we used? And um, uh, literally, everybody joined under YTEP. There wasn't anybody that I didn't know that wasn't there. There was just a few people when I went through basic training that were uh, somebody who got a, like a three-year contract, mm-hmm. and everybody else were YTEP. Um, and uh, it is essentially the the YTEP program was a year long. Uh, we thought we were joining the regular force. Didn't get really well explained to us. Uh, we actually were primary reservists. Oh. And they, they, they enlisted us as primary reservists. They gave us basic training. And if you were if, if you were fortunate enough that they were able to fit you in some sort of trades training, the one that you signed up for, and get it done within a year, um, then um, uh, you can get a real sense of, you know, at least what you're going to do in the Navy. But it wasn't long enough to figure out what's it like to be in the Navy. Right. I mean, you you right. really needed you really needed that three years to really get an assessment of uh, is is Navy life really really something you want to do. Mm-hmm. But after the year, you were no longer in the military. So if you looked at my documents, it, it says that I that I actually enlisted in Halifax, Nova Scotia, because oh, no. I was posted to Halifax. I was on HMCS protector, and I was told one day by my by my supervisor that you got to go down to the recruiting center and join the the, the forces. Right. I said, well, I am in the forces. He said, well, no, you're not. So you thought, Let me me explain this to you. And so they explained the whole thing to me, and I just found it really weird that I I got sworn in again uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I was the only one in the room in uniform. And I was amongst all these civilians who were just getting started that were kind of looking at me and really puzzled by what was going going on here. And these people were getting three-year contracts, and I think the YTEP program had stopped at that point. Hmm. and uh, most of the people, um, I think, you know, if, if I had 120 people in my group that went through, uh, I'd say about half of them, uh, half of them stuck it out in the trade that they were in. And uh, some of them, unfortunately, when their year was up, they got reassigned oh, no to a different job completely. <laughs> like uh, you got a person that was a radio operator yeah. uh, got reassigned to be a medical technician. And, you know, or, or a dental technician, and, right. and, and they, you know, it was funny to sit down with them because, you know, I, I got the opportunity to run into a couple of them as they went through this transition and changed their trades and stuff. And um, um, they were probably, you know, you, you would think that uh, uh, a young person that would look at something like that today and 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 be offered be offered and signed up to do something and then be told a year later that you you know know you're going to do something entirely different. They may just say no, right? right. Yeah, yeah, but, potentially. But um, Canada uh, at the time, I think all these small towns were all in a bit of a depression. Right. So going home wasn't an option for a lot of us, right? <laughs> and so we just sucked it off and said, right. yeah, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to do. And, and they did. And uh, they were, uh, they, and I ran into a couple of folks just by chance throughout the years. And, 
and had a chat with them to see how it worked out and uh, uh, they were all very happy okay um, they ended up you know starting families in the different places that they went and stuff and uh, right. uh, all have great stories just like mine you yeah. know just yeah. uh, just wearing a different uniform and things like that right, right. Um, yeah so so joined as uh, um, out of St. Catharines a youth training employment program for a year part of that training brought me out to the west coast here in Victoria. So I kind of really cut my teeth out here in the military for the first eight months. And I got my trades training done and, uh, and some other uh, just indoctrination training to be a sailor and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, they, they gave me an option. They said, you want to stay east or you want to go west? Or stay west, pardon me, you want to go east? And all my buddies were going east. Oh. And the east had a history, a long naval history. Right. And, sure. um, and you know, I, you know, as young people do, you don't really think that far ahead. Right. And I never really thought that, you know, that I would never come back to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I, you know, again, this is, things weren't very well explained to you. <laughs> so when, once you put your hand up and said that you're going east, you're going east and you're staying there. You're staying there. Right. right. <laughs> and in the Navy. And yeah. uh, so we went east. I ended up on HMC as protector and uh, all my buddies all ended up on ships. And, um, and uh, I arrived on a Saturday night and I went to sea on Monday morning. And um, wow. uh, was was at sea for the first time. Um, my first foreign port was Bermuda. Oh, <laughs> which, which that's a tough. Game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, it was really a lot of fun. And I remember going into Bermuda. Uh, you know, it's the first time that you're away from home. You're in another country completely. You've never been there before. You're you know just experiencing being a sailor ashore. Um, you're beaming with pride because you know your ship and you're talking to the locals about it but one of the things I really recall was just how we felt when we walked off the ship because you know it was the first time we we're on a ship and we just spent you know, four weeks at sea mm-hmm. and um, you know I got seasick my first uh, uh, my first couple of days and um, and uh, I got introduced to gravel, and uh, that, that was an interesting thing. Did that um, give you a second thought for a bit? Or? Well, no, not really, because I, I, I don't know. I, I don't recall it being a second thought. But I kind of thought that it would go away over time. I don't. Okay. Again, the, you yeah. know, young young people they don't think that far ahead. So you know, this is this is just happening to me now, and this is going to go away. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, and uh, and and it did. Uh, it did. But I, I had to take gravel for the first little while to try to get myself sorted out and settled down and. Yeah. figure out what works for me and uh, so you know when you go to see some people can't can't drink coffee right or yeah. some people can't stand the smell of broccoli oh, right. you know right. make yes. them seasick right. Right. Yes. Uh, and they, they've got these triggers and um, you know when you figure out what your triggers are um, then, then you stay away from it yeah. and right. uh, and you, you kind of figure out how to survive and see yeah so um, yeah so the, the was literally just the walking around um, and the ship was still moving underneath me and you know, I was walking with uh, with a couple of other fellows that were just new to the ship, and we were just comparing notes. Is the ship moving underneath? It? Is that, like you're walking on the sidewalk, and you feel like you're still at sea, right? right? And right. you're still moving yeah. back and forth, and right. it wasn't stopping. Right. It just kept on going. Yeah. Right. And we were wondering, is this ever going to stop? Or are we going to be like this for the rest of our lives? Now are we stuck like this. <laughs> the, reason, the reason why I'm laughing along with you is I felt the same thing when I go out on exercises and I come back and it's like, yeah, you're on landing. You still feel like you're rocking around. It's right. like, what's going on here? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, pretty exciting stuff. And then we went to, you know. We went to Europe and uh, really kind of saw the world, um, and I became my cousin. I started coming home, telling stories, and uh, coming back with gifts for my family and things like that at Christmas time. And 
No. It was uh, just a very special time in your career. Um, you know, as a young person, you're finally leaving home. Uh, you're out of your parents' care, not under their roof, so you pretty much got free reign to do the things that you want to do. Yeah. Um, and you find out that you're a little bit more disciplined than you thought you were. And, uh, um, and you, there's a lot of things that you just didn't do. Right. Um, and uh, I think your parents uh, kind of think that you're going to be this reckless little monster when you, when you get out of the house. And, then, and you probably do too, right? right and, yeah. and, until you're out of the house and you realize, no, I got a lot of responsibilities yeah. now, and, yeah. uh, I gotta and pay bills. right. And not only that, if you got in trouble, you got charged, right? And that yes, was that right. was that was pretty tough in the military. Uh, when you if you get charged for doing something wrong, the extra work and all the other stuff just isn't worth it. So just get up on time and get to work. Right. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess in a way, it kind of. Um, it, uh, I was going to say forces discipline, but it certainly, well, maybe in one way it forces discipline, but it certainly um, encourages you to kind of be mindful of things like being on time and, yeah. and you know. And, you, you know, it's interesting when you're in a naval environment or a Canadian Armed Forces environment, if you're one of those people that, um, that aren't on time or aren't pulling your weight, you really stand out. Right. 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 And uh, yes. and you're not fitting in with the team. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, nobody really likes somebody who, who doesn't pull their own weight. Sure. Right. Totally. Uh, and yeah. particularly in a, in a ship construct, the, the ship can't function if everybody isn't doing their part, particularly in this ship. And AOPV is, uh, you know, it's the size of a Canadian football field. And we haven't got a football team and a whole bunch of second lines and things like that taking care of it. We only have 65 people on board the ship and everybody has to do their part. Right. Uh, you know, cleaning stations, uh, doing dishes um, you know the captain does cleaning stations uh, it's not uncommon to see the captain carry dishes from the dishwashing room to to where we put them uh, in the cafeteria um, I mean everybody has to do their part um, just two days ago we, we just let everybody take uh, not everybody we let a rather significant amount of my ship's company take off on leave mm -hmm. and so they're visiting Victoria right now and running around Vancouver Island and having a great old time but the work still has to happen, right? right. And so yeah. we had stores coming on board, um, uh, a whole bunch of things that we purchased locally. Um, yesterday and the day before, we had generators coming on board. Um, and I, I, it's second nature to me because I'm, I've been in the Navy for so long that, you know, storing ship is just something that you do. Totally. But for a senior officer to walk out and pick up a generator with another sailor, and walk, I noticed that there was a bunch of people locally here that were looking at me. Sure. And they were tapping yeah. each other on the shoulder and pointing at me and said, there's something you don't see every day. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't see a captain picking up a generator with a sailor and bringing it on board the ship. And uh, But that that's that's how this ship works. That, that's the only way to make a ship of this size work hmm. with a small crew. Um, and uh, it's, it's a small crew because there's so much technology on board. And the technology allows us to operate the ship with fewer people. Um, mm -hmm. Like my 25-millimeter Denifor, once I put the two cassettes into the gun, uh, there's an on-off switch on the bridge, and there's an operator, a single operator that, uh, that walks up to it if I need it, and uh, that single operator just operates the gun. So there's not a, in, in the Navy, there's a thing that we refer to as guns crews. Right. We we don't we don't have a guns crew one, <laughs> one right? Right, right. Right. and yeah. everything everything really is one right. launching our um, our multi role rescue boats um, that's the you know and on, on, on some of our other ships it it takes a, a small uh, cadre of people uh, up to upwards of twenty people to launch a boat mm -hmm. and on this ship it takes one wow. you know um, we we use a couple of extra people just because it's a safe thing to do. But technically, um, you know, if I'm if I'm stationary or, um, or at sea uh, and moving slowly, I can do it with one person. No kidding. 
Yeah. Well, so we'll certainly get more into the AOPS as, as we go, but what I'm really keen to learn is how did you get to this point? How did you end up getting yeah. to... Because you also had an interest in the Arctic. Somehow that got spawned in you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the how, where, where did I start? I mean, I started off in the mailroom, literally. And the Navy is such an amazing institution. I'd say, and I'd submit the Canadian Armed Forces are an amazing institution. That, uh, you know, you can come into the military, and I think the limit uh, the, is still a grade 10 education. Okay. So you could... You could live. I don't recommend it. No, but uh, <laughs> right. but you could leave high school at grade ten uh, and join the military, um, and you will have an exceptional career. Um, and if you wish to get further education and things like that, um, and you put the work in, the military will pay for it. Like they, they, they will literally pay your way to for the benefit of the Canadian Armed Forces. Right. Um, and it allows somebody to quite literally start off in the mailroom. Uh, and if you're, you know, if you're made of the right stuff, you can, you can actually um, really capitalize on a lot of benefits in the Canadian Armed Forces to uh, kind of step up. And so I joined the Navy as a signalman. Started off here on the, uh, like I said, here on the West Coast and I moved east. And I sailed out there for a few years. And uh, um, at one point, uh, the, uh, they were balancing the coast out and they moved me out uh, to the West Coast again. Okay. And I sailed out there for a few years. And it was... When I was sailing on the West Coast, I had a boss that uh, asked me if I would like a high-profile position. So a high-profile position for a leading seaman was really quite inspiring to me, and I was like, I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we had a series of training squadrons uh, and smaller ships and bigger ships where we did training. Uh, we trained junior officers to uh, navigate and drive ships. And um, we had a, what we referred to as a woodpecker squadron. It was a wooden minesweepers that were over in Langford. Are those the Yags? Uh, no, no, no they're not the Yags. They're, okay. As a matter of fact, if you're in North Vancouver, mm-hmm. you will still see one of the Bay-class minesweepers okay. that's turned into a, some sort of cruise ship or maybe maybe even a restaurant or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, the, anyway, I saw it when I left uh, North Van. I hadn't seen it in years. Right. And they still have a painted gray, which is interesting. I'm, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe they're using it for film or something like that. Anyway, uh, just to say that uh, they sent me over there. Um, and it was just one of those instances where there's a small crew. Um, there's only one position. There's no, really no supervisor for you. you. You work directly for the captain in the EXO. Okay. I was the, referred to as the yeoman on board, which is the uh, senior naval signalman on board, um, who worked really closely and alongside with uh, junior officers who were studying to be bridge watchkeepers and studying how to be in the Navy and how to navigate and things like that. And it was really... It was, it was really, I was really interested in it. Um, and a lot of the things that they were doing just came second nature to me. I just underst- intuitively understood it. Maybe it was a previous life or something that that's, uh, just kind of signaled to me. But anything that they're doing, if they're doing relative velocity problems and things like that, I just, I, I looked at it and I just knew it. Um, and, and so when there was a student that was struggling with it, I would sit down and show them, uh, which was probably pretty rare for an NCM to sit down with a junior student uh, as an officer and, and kind of look at that my captain noticed um and my captain uh his name is harry harsh he's retired now and he's back on the east coast but he, he noticed that uh, i was I, I was quite inclined to do that type of work and he asked why i would consider being an officer nice and uh i i was you know deeply honored and uh i was like wow me being an officer that that's that, that, that that's that's awesome but yeah. uh yeah. but you know in my mind as well it's a bit of a stretch i mean 
And when I, I got my PER, or personal evaluation reports, an annual report that you get, mm-hmm. uh, Harry Harsh wrote me up. And in the report, he recommended that I could be considered for officer training. Nice. And deeply honored, right? Yes, and I, I, was, I was so proud that I showed uh, my two mentors uh, over a leadership session one day. Yeah. And they, um, they were really upset. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah I mean, they, they were happy. Sure. And they, they said, you know, well, of course, Corey, you, that's, uh, you, you've got all the... Um, all the traits to be a good officer, but they were frustrated because they were like, we can't always lose all of our great people to the officer corps. Mm. Um, the NCM corps needs great leaders as well. And not to say that I was a great leader or anything like that, but just to say that um, what they were saying to me was, you know, there's a real path for you here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, don't d- don't get clouded by the notion of wearing gold and things like that. So right. Really kind of, you know, determine your own path and, um, and kind of figure out how you're going to contribute to the Navy in your own way. You know, what's interesting about that is that part of this podcast, I I chat with so many people in different armed forces that I try to pick up on nuggets of leadership skills I can, I can get from the people that I speak with. And so it's really interesting that they had that perspective because you're right, every, every tier needs people that are specialists right. in there. And if you keep losing them to the next tier up or what have you, yeah, then, um, but I guess it really boils down to knowing who you are and, right. what, and what you want. Right, and so um, I steered away from it. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I was influenced by their comments and things like that. And I said, okay, well, my, my focus is, it needs to be with the NCM Corps. Sure. And I, I stayed on that path for a long time. And, and as, as people get older and they, they mature over time and, uh, um, you know, your, your situations change, um, the, the Navy changes, um, you know, we, we came from a point in time where we were sailing on steamships, steamship destroyers, old Bay-class wooden minesweepers to Halifax patrol frigates. And that transition was huge. Right. Um, yeah. It changed the Navy in a lot of different ways. And um, it changed the Navy in a way that our sailors needed to be, uh, I don't want to say smarter, they, they were really technically driven. Um, and uh, they, they, their involvement inside the ship was, uh, when, you, when you work on a steamship, people are specifically looking at the steam engines, and that's their focus, and that's really where they are. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in our steamers, you know, full disclosure, they weren't that capable. Mm-hmm. They're tremendous uh, uh, vessels to go to sea with. Um, they had a single gun on board. We had some torpedo tubes, but that was the extent of the capability on the ships sure. until the Gulf War occurred. And then we really started uh, putting things on them like a Sea Whiz and uh, right. a closed-in weapon system for Sea Whiz, right. uh, harpoon missiles, and um, really kind of changing the game. And we all really realized that that we needed frigates, right? I mean, when, as soon as as soon as the first Gulf War came around, we were like, "Oh, ruins! We're we're actually going into conflict with these steamships, and we're slapping pieces of kit onto them that they were really never designed to have on them." Right. Um, right. And 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 you know we we. As the Navy does, it's an incredibly flexible organization that we just learn as we go. Um, and uh, uh, they did extraordinarily well, but those frigates were welcomed. Um, and, it, you know, it, they came at a time, uh, I, don't, I don't know what it is about Canada, but they seem to make their decisions just in time and, and at the right time. <laughs> Um, and, yeah, right, right. Uh, it's almost like you're getting lucky. Right, right. right? Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, the frigates came at the perfect time for the Canadian Navy and as the world was changing. Right. And it was such a dramatic thing. And the sailors were changing and I was changing with it. 
the first golf war, we went to see with some brand new technology, some old technology, and a whole bunch of new training. And our, our sailors' um, jobs changed dramatically. Our senior personnel on board the ship, their jobs changed dramatically. And our relationship on board the ship changed as well. Um, there, there wasn't a lot of time left on your hands anymore because you're, you're, you're literally uh, closing up and standing watches uh, 12 hours a day, broken up, seven hours on, five hours off, and five hours on, seven hours off. But uh, there, there were full days at sea. And in the steamer days, it was a lot easier. We had movie nights and things like that. Uh, it, was, it was just a different lifestyle. Sure, yeah. And, uh, and so uh, the second Gulf War rolled around. And, you know, the United States Navy was uh, really on the cutting edge of communications. Computers at people's homes on their desks were things that uh, were commonplace now. Oddly enough, not commonplace in warships. Mm. Um, while we had these state-of-the-art ships with all this fighting equipment on board, mm-hmm. when it came to communications, we, we still had some work to be done. Mm. And we, we were still working with, with 1950s technology on board the ships. Uh, using um, high-frequency uh, communications and things like that and printing things off on paper and um, on old broadcasts. And you would see it in World War II movies, and it wasn't that much different than what we were doing uh, sure. on board the ships, sure. where you literally, there's a roll of paper, and you literally tore the message off the printer, and you read it. Right. Um, and that, that was our reality for uh, the first Gulf War, and the, I, I'd submit probably the first five to ten years of frigates being in service. Okay. In the second Gulf War, everything changed because the United States, they started really aggressively doing satellite communications, mm. um, meaning that it was mainstay and it wasn't going away. And if you wanted to integrate with the United States or few of our allies, uh, you needed to be able to keep up in so far as communications. Yep. And that meant that you needed to go with what we referred to as IP addressing, which is you know just satellite communications and data connections and, uh, and going to a computer and sending emails and chat and all these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it meant that we had to install all this equipment on board the ship. And right after 9-11, that's when we started doing it, right. after 9-11. Right. Like a couple of weeks after 9-11, Corey Gleason and Shop 151 locally here and um, a beautiful man by the name of Glenn Gilmore and his team were technicians here in the dockyard. They, um, they worked uh, tirelessly with me day and night. Um, we were on board the ship on Christmas Day doing everything we could uh, to bring communications up to a standard that when we got out the gates, um, we were able to integrate with the force immediately. Because they, they were sending such large volumes of information that um, it had to come to the ship by computers. It right. couldn't come to the ship by old broadcasts and printers. There's no way we could get through it all. Right, right. And there's no way we could receive it all. Yeah. Is part of that also the link system? Is that so link, part, part no, that? no, link is link is different. So link is uh, developing a surface picture where you have a series of assets, air assets, and subsurface assets, and they're all transmitting and linked together showing their positions and showing and what they're doing is pushing out information that they've got on visual displays and sharing whatever like if they've got a radar contact and they just happen to be 120 miles away they can link that picture that's surrounding around them because they'll be they will be able to pick up um um uh, without you know displaying any kind of secrets or anything like Mm -hmm. that whatever's in their vicinity with all of their sensors whatever they're able to collect and put on a visual display they can link that out to another ship that's hundreds of miles away or around the world. 
okay. if it's so inclined to do so. Right. Uh, and they can see precisely what's what's on your surface picture in and around you. Okay. So linking is literally linking all the ships together and all the aircraft and all the submarines and everybody that's working together as a team, um, literally linking them all together so they could cover hundreds and hundreds of miles of spans of land to actually uh, get a real grid lock on what's going on around them. And how does that link picture get transmitted? Like, is that through satellite? All of it, yeah. Okay. Satellites, uh, it, 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 you can do it in any number of mediums. Okay. Uh, satellite is one of them. Uh, you can do it by HF, you can do it by UHF. Um, right. you, you combine them, so you, uh, you, know, you, you have you, vessels that are closer, you wouldn't necessarily need to use satellite, and vessels that are farther away, or, or countries that are farther away, and you want to point, so you want to, you want to provide um, a surface picture. You know, I mean, so Link in the 80s and 90s was something that was really sophisticated, and similar to computers, mm-hmm. um, when we were uh, networking computers, before network computers became something that were just in everybody's home, uh-huh. Link is now something that industry uses all the time. Sure. And they, it's what we what we use now is um, a thing called the AIS. Oh, right, yeah, um, yeah and, for sure. And all of the small vessels in the area uh, or around the world, you can get AIS on your cell phone now. Mm-hmm. And you just, you can see where all the ships are in the world through AIS. I was watching you guys come right. down the east coast of Vancouver Island. So yeah. AIS for your listeners is, is, is a great, um, uh, I, uh, you know, the definition of what Link can, is capable of doing and what it can do for you. That's a good way to yeah. explain it. Yeah, that right. actually explains it to right. me better because it's it's hard to kind of grasp that. Time, right, you know? right. I, like, I, I understand that it builds a picture, but I'm like, well, how does it all connect together? Right, you know? and so, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Anyway, but you were more on the communication side doing all this stuff. So I was uh, Christmas Day, uh, putting in putting in servers and things like that. We were, we, you know, we, we, we left for the Gulf, and we were still doing installations, wow. um, and we were still, you know, we, we were at a point that, that at that point that we could actually have folks that were working out of uh, server rooms here that could reach into our system so they could continue to work twenty four and seven, so I could actually go to sleep. <laughs> and they, they awesome. yeah. So the, the the team the team were tremendous, and they by the time we got halfway around the world to our uh, to to where we needed to be, we were completely turned on and completely um, operational and updating our information with regards to our coalition forces. And when we got there, we were we were ready to go. Hey folks, here is a message about our sponsor, Cubic Defense. The episode you're hearing about today speaks about developing high-end capabilities. Such capabilities come from the training that warfighters undertake to be the best prepared that they can be. Cubic is the market leader in training operators to be proficient in the application of their platforms for their warfighting mission. From well-integrated instrumentation systems, to game-based learning, to multi-domain, blended, live, virtual, and constructive training environments, Cubic remains the United States' allied and coalition partner of choice to deliver truth in training. Cubic's total learning platform is a maritime, game-based learning platform that has proven to reduce the time-to-train-watch standards on U.S. LCS combatants by 90%, and Cubic's blended Live, virtual, and constructive open standards-based solution enables live and virtual ships and aircraft to train together in a common, secure, synthetic environment. 
At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic delivers real results. We are proud to have Cubic as a teammate for this podcast, and we thank them for their faith in us to help preserve the voices of military leaders like our guest today. To learn more about Cubic, please visit them at cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat. But all of that stuff took a lot of effort, a lot of education, um, a lot of studying, uh, a lot of that, a lot of the, um, the, uh, uh, when you say education and studying, it wasn't available in the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, some of it wasn't even available in industry yet because it was really cutting-edge stuff. Um, so, you know, uh, your listeners probably wouldn't know this, but um, networking books, they used to be about, uh, I think, about uh, four inches thick. Um, and you can just envision that we had five or six of these books and, you know, a series of technicians and myself reading through these networking books, trying to figure out how to bridge uh, the networks together and why the signal was attenuating here and how do we boost it and, and um, you know, uh, just scratching our heads trying to figure it all out. Yeah. And we all figured it out and uh, we did really quite well. Um, we did some groundbreaking stuff, changed the Navy and how we communicated under the leadership of Commodore Leary mm-hmm. literally overnight. And we never looked back. Mm. Um, and on our way back, uh, my captain had asked my combat officer to come and have a chat with me. His name is Carl Chucherol. He, uh, he lives in Calgary, Alberta now. He's a civilian. Um, but uh, he came to the CCR to ask me if I would consider being an officer. And, you know, I was... So this is the uh, second time right. you're, you're being asked. And I'm like, uh, and immediately I said, no. <laughs> Why would I want to start all over again? You know how hard this was? <laughs> this was not easy yeah. to get here. And yeah. starting all over again does not intrigue me. Yeah. And uh, may I add, you're actually now you are the specialist, right? You know, so, right, and cutting edge specialist right. in, in the in the navy that's uh, you know doing the first thing, yeah, right. the, and, and putting the first servers on board the ships, and uh, and you know it didn't take very long for a lot of other people to catch up and get much better than me, but uh, um, at you know at first I, I wrote a service paper, I had an idea, um, I was able to uh, incorporate that idea, win some people over, have some folks listen to us. And uh, and I had an argument. I had a very good argument because the you know the the problem was we had to we had to integrate with a coalition force, and we didn't have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And I had an answer for them, and the Navy was willing to to listen um, to nice. to the answer. Um, and uh, and but they also told me to put my money where my mouth is. Right? right. I could have right. failed miserably. Right. I really right. fell on my face. But I uh, I got lucky. I didn't. Um, and uh, I, I was surrounded by, you know, really talented people. Glenn Gilmore and his team were just, just amazing guys. Um, cool. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, the, after the trip's over, we're on our way home, and I got that, uh, that, that offer, and I was like, no. And, um, and then the more I thought about it, the more I milled around with it, and I thought some more. And um, I asked my wife what she thought, and she said, I'm not going to stand away your career to do what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, well, yeah, uh, but you know this. It's it's when 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 you make changes like that, you're asking your family to make a change with you, right? Uh, becoming an officer in the in the Canadian Armed Forces isn't isn't like any other job, right? It is extraordinarily demanding, um, and you you have commitments that are unique to being an officer in the Navy. Um, and, and I would offer, um, correct me if if you think I'm wrong, Commander, but particularly in the Navy. You know, I, I, I don't know. 
Uh, I haven't been in the Army or the right. Air Force. So <laughs> I, 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 yeah. The reason why I was saying particularly in the Navy is because when you when you set sail, you, you know, you're not coming home at the end of the day. No. You know? So that's kind of And why then I when you go into, go into a foreign port, like we'll just use North Vancouver because it was just recently. Sure. Uh, HMCS Harry DeWolf pulled into uh, North Vancouver. And there's a there, there's a, a diplomatic responsibility, right? And that diplomatic responsibility goes around the world. But uh, in this in the case of North Vancouver, we were, you know, introducing the ship to leaders in the community, uh, to shipbuilding industry, um, and to uh, uh, other like-minded sailors, um, and other government departments who are who are willing to come and take a look. Uh, and that's a responsibility of being an officer, and the responsibility of the commanding officer in particular. But to um, to, to support those types of things um, is also, you know, sometimes responsibility of you and your family as well. Um, yes. You know, there's places where you're, you're, you have obligations that uh, you have to, you know, necessarily have to bring your family, but so when, you, when, when, you, when you go to places and you speak and things like that and you have dinners, social events, you have a bigger social calendar that you have to fulfill. Right. And uh, it's nicer if you can bring your bring your spouse with you than it is to go by yourself all the time. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right? Totally. Right? Absolutely. Uh, uh, and not that they, uh, not that I, I would submit that your spouse particularly enjoys the fact that they're coming to work with you at nighttime, <laughs> but um, I would submit that they, there, there is some benefit from it and they do enjoy it sure. um, to yeah. some degree. And I guess, you know, it gives them more of an appreciation for what you're doing. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, and they ground you, too. Right. In front of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Every people, everybody know that you are just, you are simply just Corey at You're home. Corey, right? right? That's right. Um, so you got this offer. And yeah, I, I got the offer and I sat on it for a while. Yeah. Um, and uh, I sat on it for probably close to about four to eight weeks. Oh, and, did you um, have that much time? Or, or yeah, you know, you know, yeah, I mean, they weren't in a rush to do anything. And it was a... So a message uh, would come out, or an offer would come out annually, uh, asking commanding officers in the Canadian Forces to look within their own lines to see if they have anybody that uh, that that we should reach up, re- you know, reach into and pull up. Okay. Um, and it's referred to a commissioning from the ranks program. Mm. And uh, the commissioning from the ranks program was presented to me. And um, from the moment that I said yes to the point in time that I got an offer was literally weeks. Um, and that that was a bit of a uh, that was a bit of a punch in the gut because it became a reality now, right? right? So right. now you're thinking. So you, we take you back now and we say, okay, well, I guess about 15 years ago, somebody offered you or suggested that you should consider being an officer, and then you know, 15 years later, you you've had 15 years to think about it, and um, and it never went away. It was always in the back of my mind. You know, did did you make the right decision? Are you? Um, and then it gets offered again. Um, and then you, you get accepted and I was, you know, there's a pause there where you say, Oh, what did I do? Right. Uh, and the other part about it was, you know, you didn't do all that work for 17 years and not establish a reputation for yourself. Totally. Right. Yeah. And then once you've, uh, taken a commission, you're starting from scratch. Right. And that reputation doesn't mean anything. Right. And nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody cares what you did. Yeah. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Right. Um, and how well are you going to do it? And uh, that was uh, that was a bit of a tough transition for me, and uh, you know, um, and if your listeners are ever going through any kind of change like that, uh, um, I went through some anxiety um, uh, at different times, and uh, you know, fought through it. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a tough transition for me um, to give that up 
and to give up that that reputation and give up all the things that you that you did but you know at the same token you can't undo all those things either so nobody can take really take them away from you and uh, once you kind of wrap your head around the fact that yeah just put a nice bow on that um it's your body of work and uh you know nobody cares about what you accomplished but you can you can take pride in what you've done personally um and uh and i find myself um reflecting on uh like even you know when i'm talking to folks uh, about some of the challenges they're faced with i find myself using those um, different times in my career to kind of help them make some of their own decisions and, or figure out what their path is going to be um or just you know tell them about uh, you know you're not alone in your struggles you yeah. know we, we all we all go through this stuff i think yeah. that's that's part of um it, it's not i think it's one of the one of the i, I was i was going to use the word obligation but it's not it, it's one of the things that i think naturally happens i would assume to a commanding officer where you are mentoring everybody you know within your within your formation within your unit but it can happen at every level, right? Like, I mean, any experience you have, you hopefully help you help people that are that are looking for some of those answers. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly trying, and uh, uh, I'll I'll continue to try just as long as people want to listen. Well, I will I will tell you one thing. Everybody that I've talked to, and I'm not saying this because I'm you're giving me the time to sit here and, and have this lovely chat, but everybody that I've talked to has spoken very complimentary of you as a commanding officer and as as a person, for that matter. Oh, that's nice of you to say. Thanks. Yeah, you're very welcome. And straight goods. So, um, and that makes me feel good. Like, I mean, I'm, you know, I have the privilege to be here. I have the privilege to meet a lot of people in the military, and and uh, and it's nice when you hear people speak well of others and be like, you know, he's a stand-up guy and super. So, take that for what it is. And uh, I'm glad you're here. Yeah. You know? Well, thanks very much. That's really nice. You're welcome. Bring it to your mind. Yeah, good. You know, I I, I I look at it as being a citizen of the world. Like, I mean, you know, you want good people in this world. You want, and if those good people can also be leaders, even better. You know, so um, yeah. So you accepted that offer to mm-hmm. become an officer, and then how did you develop this interest in northern naval operations? So, um, well, to be a junior officer, you have to study navigation. And you have to learn to be a bridge watchkeeper, and you can't be a bridge watchkeeper if you don't understand navigation. Right. We get some, and during our training, we get exposed to a lot of history. Hmm. And uh, in some instances, you get exposed to history, and you're using new technology like gyros and things like that, and not using old technology like magnetic compasses. And when you're reflecting on the history and how people navigated back in the day, uh, because a lot of it was required reading. You, you got to ask yourself how how did you how do they do it like the magnetic compass doesn't work up north like what right. like how did they do that and you know they're not using the stars it's pretty cloudy up there right, right? uh and uh, you know it's it, it, you, it was it was just like there was just a lot of hows and hmm. um and i just purposely started trying to figure it out um okay. it was just something that was intuitive to me that i just needed to kind of pursue and um and kind of scratch at it and and you know i, I specialized in navigation um i became a deep draft navigator one of the few last deep draft navigators in the canadian navy and uh, you know i felt i was pretty good at it. Yeah. um and uh i was fortunate enough to who's a commodore now uh, um dave mazer our commodore dave mazer he was my xo on board hmcs vancouver okay. and i was buried in work in my cabin 
on my bulkhead was a, a chart of, of, of the Arctic, it was a polar chart, so it was a round chart. And um, uh, I knew so little about navigation. I was looking at that chart trying to figure out how do you navigate on that chart mm. uh, in this polar chart, re- not realizing that they didn't. Right. Um, right. But uh, they, they reduced it down to a Mercator chart in, 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 in small chunks. But at the time, I knew so little about um, about what they did up north that I just couldn't get my head wrapped around it. I was like, how do they do that? Right. Um, and so I had that on there. And every, every once in a while when I was... Um, when I was uh, that, that noise that you hear right now, that's our ship's broadcast, and that's somebody trying to figure out how to use it. It's awesome. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's not awesome. It's really annoying it's sometimes. Like, yeah, come on. yeah. So anyway, just to say that back to navigation. Um, yeah. So looking at the polar chart, trying to figure it out, and every once in a while, I would just if I was working on something else and I needed some time just to reflect, I would take a break from whatever I was working on, just stare at stare at that, and I and on my desk was an allied tactical publication that was written back in the 50s and it was a natal naval arctic operations manual that i read cover to cover uh which qualifies me as being probably the most biggest geek you've ever met if i'm going to read that kind of stuff right <laughs> it, was, it, was, it. <laughs> it was bad enough that i read those the, those network uh, books cover to cover now i'm reading this right, you know, right. for for just out of Glutton recreation <laughs> just out of recreation and trying to figure out things <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I was just, I was just intrigued by the whole idea and, uh, and all the, all the terrible stories too, mm. you know, all of the tragedies that occurred up there where people had, you know, tried to discover the Northwest passage. How do they, you know, um, uh, you, and you see on my desk here that are, I've got four or five books on go. Oh, that's what, that's the way I read, by the way. I can't just read one book. Just, I've got three or four books opened at different times and, uh, and I, I, I'll finish them close to all the same time. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, like you can see that I'm almost where, where the tags are in the books that they're almost done. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, a new, a new, a new library, a new library. Right. It'll have to be something new because it's all Arctic <laughs> stuff laying around here. Um, but uh, maybe need some southern stuff. Right. I think I kind of conquered the Arctic now, so I got to go figure out. So I'm going to go to space. That's right. where I'm going now. Um, so I anyway. You know, I just looking at it, and Dave Mazur was my uh, was my XO when he came in. He said, Are "You interested in the Arctic?" And I kind of jokingly said to him, "What was your first clue?" Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he just he, he said, "You know, I've got a neighbor that's um, that that's, uh, works for the Canadian Coast Guard. I might be able to get you up there." And I, I was like, "Oh wow, that'd be that'd be really awesome." I don't know what I would do up there, but that'd be really cool. Yeah. Um, and it would just we figured it there out. They figured, they figured it out. Figured awesome. It out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, just to say that uh, he, he said it. I said I would like to do it, and never heard back from since. Okay. And so um, I was navigating Vancouver. After I finished navigating Vancouver, and this was about a year later, I ended up navigating HMCS Protector, okay. and I got this random email um, from an organization called DMT, Director of Military Training and Education, huh. and they, uh, they, 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 it was pretty short. It was a pretty short email that just said, uh, you know, uh, we understand that you're interested in going to the Arctic. If you're interested, we need you to report on the following things. And they gave me a list of things that they wanted me to report on. And it was quite, quite a significant list. And just for your listeners, an example was they wanted me to study hull design. They wanted me to study the different jobs of the different crew members in the Canadian Coast Guard, look at their terms of references. They wanted me to study their training system. Um, they, 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 they wanted one person 
just to group all this stuff together in a report that I, that I affectionately refer to as the brick. Because if you were going to print it off, it would probably be about uh, 12 inches high of things that, uh, that I reported on and wrote about and stuff. And that kind of made me uh, their go-to guy. Because, you know, I, I went up there and I came back. And, um, you know, I, I, I like to think um, that uh, I won the, the hearts and minds of the Canadian Coast Guard um, uh, and really established good relations with them. I'm still friends with them today. Um, Norm Thomas, who is a you know a tremendous mentor of mine for Arctic navigation. Rich Marriott, his first officer, now now senior. Norm is retired, and, and Rich is more senior than, than Norm was. And uh, so this is how things work, right? Norm right. teaches him everything that he knows, and now he's better. Yeah, now he's right. more senior to everybody else. Anyway, uh, tr- tremendously talented navigators uh, really know their stuff up north, and were really generous with their time with me. And uh, they continuously the, were, were like that throughout the, they, they still are. As a matter of fact, when I was up north, I was, uh, I was determining some different passages that I was going to go through. And I had all the information presented in front of me on what to do and wh- which route to take. But I'm not a fool. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I've got an opportunity to touch base with somebody, I do. Yeah, and, sure. um, and so uh, I sent an email out to uh, the two of those folks and uh, my mentor on the East Coast, Anthony Potts, and shared my thoughts, my ideas. Um, they reached back to me and each one of them gave me their opinion. Um, oddly enough, all of us were arrived at all the same opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you know, you're on the right track when, uh, you're thinking one thing and everybody's just consistently saying what you're thinking. Right. Um, and, uh, anyway, just to say that, um, DMT found their person to do that work. And I continued to feed into DMT as they created questions and things like that. I didn't know what they were up to. I didn't know that they were working on an AOPV program or anything like that. They didn't tell they me. They didn't tell you. Wow. No. Um, but uh, yeah, so from, from time to time, they, they would ask me to go north, and I did. And um, and I report on it. And uh, during Protector's uh, fire on board, I was part of the uh, Board of Inquiry. Okay. And while conducting the Board of Inquiry, I was approached by Admiral Akhmoni if I would consider going to AOPVs. Is that something that I would do? And I told him that. Uh, I told him about my Arctic experience and the work that I did for DMTE, and he said, oh, well, I didn't know that. It looks like you're our guy. And I just dismissed it again, right? Yeah, our guy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so um, yeah. whatever that means. Right. Um, maybe there's another report that they're going to want me to do or something like that. Sure. And, uh, yeah, and uh, so um, Protector's Fire was in 2013, I think, and um, uh, somewhere around October, October, November 2014, um, Admiral Norman called me, mm-hmm. and uh, I was at the airport in Victoria here, going to Halifax to work with HMCS Charlottetown, and uh, he called me on my cell phone, and uh, uh, he said, Corey, I need you to do me a favor. And I said, yes, sir, <laughs> as you do to admirals. <laughs> right, right, yeah. um, and he said, I need you to take command of uh, HMCS Harry and Wolf. And that's exactly what it sounded like on the phone, silence. And... He was like, uh, did we lose connection? It's like, over. <laughs> I said, I heard you, sir. I'm just uh, picking myself off, off of the floor here. It's, aye, aye, sir. Uh, I'm your guy. I won't let you down. He says, I know you won't. And I'm going to keep you in, uh, in uh, Victoria for another year. I don't need you to move out there just yet. But when they start cutting steel, I'm going to need you to move. Okay. And I said, aye, sir. And uh, so the rest, you know, the, re- the rest in that, in that sense is a bit of history where, you know, uh, once I was um, identified, the external machines that were part of the AOPV project or the AOPS project because the um, AOPS was the actual project name mm-hmm. 
and that's a contractor's uh, project name. AOPVs is our is the name that we give these vessels in the Navy. That's um, interesting because I've seen it written both ways. I'm like, well, which one? Uh, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. So it's uh, uh, Arctic Offshore Patrol ships yep. is the uh, the civilian side of it, right. and Arctic Offshore Patrol vessels is the uh, the Canadian Armed Forces naval side of it. Okay. Um, and uh, and it, it helps us. You know, it seems a little little strange to do that type of thing, but it helps us to separate what we're talking about in different topics and different conversations. So, you know, if we're talking AOPS, we're talking contracted related activities and builds and and production related. If we're talking AOPVs, then we start considering operations, um, you know, training, uh, things that are really truly related to the ship in the Navy. So that's why the distinction between the two. And that's why it's important that uh, for us in uniform and uh, civilians that are working for D&D or contractors, working for Irving or subcontractors, supporting the the program, understand and use those tools to separate the tools. It's a good distinction. There's a lot of moving parts. It really is. And uh, and you need the distinction or or people just get confused. Totally. Uh, Totally. Well, you mentioned Irving, you know, the AOPS is or AOPV, depending mm-hmm. on perspective, is built uh, is built by Irving Shipyards in Halifax. Talk to me about the vessel. Uh, how would you describe, you know, if somebody's not looking at it uh, or not familiar with it, how would you describe what this ship is and what its role is? Yeah, okay, so the, the, the ship is the, the length of a Canadian football field. So you can put that in perspective almost immediately and just visualize the fact that uh, it's uh, it's really quite big. Mm-hmm. Um and it's uh, it's you know it's it's just a little bit less than twenty meters wide, um, and Canadian Patrol frigate for people who have seen those, um, Harry the Wolf is taller than a frigate, and is two thousand tons heavier than a frigate. Um, okay. The ship is capable of carrying a cyclone helicopter. It's part of a scalable navy in that it has a lot of capabilities that are unique to this class of ship, mm-hmm. um, but it's not a missile carrier. Like a frigate, right? Um, so it's not considered a combatant. It's not considered well. It's not considered a combatant if you define combatant uh, missile on missile, torpedo on torpedo kind of work. Right. But it's got a business end, sure. right? And um, uh, it does have a gun. It does have fifty caliber weapons. It does carry a cyclone helicopter. Mm-hmm. A cyclone helicopter all by itself is a very powerful weapon at sea. Totally. Um, and, uh, and the ship has, um, you know, things that are unique to it that you wouldn't see on a frigate where my small boats are, are I, can, I can put guns on them in Trent and actually make them gunboats. Right. Which yeah. um, is really quite unique. And I, I would submit that uh, you're going to see more of those things on, on, on ships in the future mm-hmm. um, because it gives you a great deal of a constabulary um, support to uh, either domestically or abroad. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, when I said scalable Navy, you have to have, if you're, if you're going to be in the business of a Navy, you have to have submarines, you have to have warships that, are, that have torpedoes and missiles on them. you got to have them. And right. it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's, it's the starting point that you need to be at. Yeah. Uh, and then if you want to keep these ships at sea and actually conduct uh, meaningful operations, you need tankers uh, to keep them at sea and keep a force at sea. Um, and then the other things that the government needs and the Canadian Navy or a Navy needs is the scalable pieces to respond to different levels of, of crises in the world. Um, so this vessel has a sea lift capability. I can put 
uh, six sea containers on the quarter deck that allows me to carry about 70 tons of sea lift so if you think about Haiti for instance and they haven't they, they recently just had a terrible earthquake right. if the Canadian government was to be asked to respond to uh, to that event we could fill the ship full of doctors and nurses fill this uh, those sea containers full of things that are important for um, to, to respond as initial response um, we can use our hangar in unique ways for uh, casualty uh, staging and um, we've got a big hospital on board to bring people in the most you know the most injured and then allow them to uh, recover in different places in the ship and you know when you are dealing with the humanitarian disaster relief function you have to have that constabulary role as well because there's a security element to it right sure. yeah. people are in need and people will do desperate things and when des desperate times and so you need this other capability that comes with a military um, just as a deterrence if, if at the very least you, you, when, you, when, you, when you come to, uh, and I'll call it a fight because humanitarian disaster relief is, uh, is, is a different type of fight, but it is a fight. And when you come to the fight, you, you, you need to demonstrate that um, not only are you here to help, but you're here to stabilize as well. Right. And stabilizing uh, the, the, the situation uh, for the people is, is probably the hardest thing because you can, you can show up with bottles of water and start handing out water. To, to folks and things like that, but you're not doing anything, right? right. You you need you need to stabilize the the area. Um, yeah, so you you need a ship like this to do that type of work, and of course uh, this thing will deliver that in spades. Um, that was something neat that you that you mentioned. So you, you've got this capacity, and you spoke about the crew complement earlier. It's a big ship, but not that many people. It, it, you know, what what I. I would suspect people would be um, surprised to hear the number. Yeah, so it's 65. Um, and generally speaking, a ship of this size would have 240 people on board. Wow. Yeah. Um, and the, the ship has a lot of technology on board, so the machine kind of takes care of itself. Mm. So what we generally are doing on board the ship is uh, monitoring the systems that are monitoring the systems. Right. Um, and so there's displays either on the bridge or in the machinery control room uh, and alarms and things like that that alert an operator to an issue inside the ship. Um, but what that does is, and, and our ability to operate a ship of this size and this level of capability with so few people it allows me to bring on all those additional resources, all those other government departments that I talked about, or the, uh, the NGOs and all these folks that are really kind of, you know, we're, we're going to show up to, to a scene and um, we deliver support to them in their unique way that they need it. And I don't need a lot of people to focus on operating the ship. Um, the 25 millimeter gun, for instance, is a single operator, right? Uh, and, you know, in, in, in frigates or, or in traditional navies, there's, a, there's an organization called the Guns Crews okay. to just function and operate the gun. And uh, uh, I, an operator goes up to the gun, loads up the cassettes, then walks onto the bridge and starts and turns it on and starts pushing the button to fire it, right? It's that simple. Um, we've, we've got, um, you know, the ability to launch our boats um, just using a single David system with a single operator to push a button. Uh, our ladder is on the side of the ship that uh, we use for uh, mass casualty recovery using our landing craft. It's a push of a button and the whole ladder goes down by itself. We don't need teams of people to uh, get onto the ladder and assemble it on the side of the ship and stuff. It just doesn't. We don't need to do that type of stuff. And you don't need to do that in this day and age if you know what you're doing in shipbuilding right right um right. and so this is really a canadian 
design that's really unique um, because there's other countries that are building OPVs, mm -hmm. offshore patrol vessels, mm -hmm. and there's other countries that are using them, but you'll never see another, you'll, you'll, and they're, they're similar. Like you'll go to other countries and you'll see, oh, there's an OPV. Right. Well, that's similar to what the RN has or uh, the Danish Navy has a similar thing. Sure. This ship is incredibly unique and it's a very specific Canadian design. Um, some folks would submit that it's, um, that it's a takeoff from this Fallbird class. And I would have to agree with that. But then there's the Canadian twist to it. Mm. And, um, and so this ship is an Arctic offshore patrol vessel that can operate in the north or in the south, um, which is really quite unique for a ship of, they don't make icebreakers like that. They, they, the ships that are meant to operate up north are specifically designed and configured within the engineering components to operate up north and not really go down south. Right. And this ship has abilities to operate in the dead of winter up north and the engines and things like that need to be cooled. Using that freezing cold water and bringing it inside the ship will have a tendency to slush inside the ship. So we have heating capacity to actually avoid that from occurring and bringing the water into this into the ship and cooling off engines and, and then discharging it um, and then we can go further south and all of our our computer equipment none of that stuff likes to get hot right and so we have a huge hvac capacity inside the ship to keep the ship really quite cool so all the equipment uh, functions and operates properly so you have to account for both extremes right you really do and uh and the, the ship when it when it goes north you got to tune it one way right. and then you got then when you're going south you got to start tuning it in a different way to uh to to condition the in the inside of the ship for it how quickly could that tuning be done okay it's just yeah 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 so winterization uh uh, there's there's a rather significant checklist that has to occur, um, and uh, uh, we winterize the ship. Um, you when, when you're going up north, you'll you'll notice that um, if you're on the upper decks and you put your hands on the rails, mm -hmm. that they're warm. Okay. There's trace heating in, in the rails and on the stairs and stuff to prevent any kind of icing and things like that to occur. Because icing is a big issue for a ship and uh, sure. causes it's real stability concern. And right. probably the biggest concern that I had uh, going north, particularly in the dead of winter, because I had to get there. Right. And going through, uh, if you've ever, just, just look at a movie. You don't even need to experience it. Just get north of Newfoundland okay. and start going north. And any terrible picture that you see where a ship is actually up north in terrible seas, that is every day. Wow. <laughs> that is every day up there, wow. um, and particularly in the wintertime. And it's tough to get up there. Yeah. And uh, and there's techniques that you that an operator needs to understand. When I say operator, I mean captain and his bridge watchkeepers, <laughs> is that you... Um, if you if you can find it and if it's cold enough, if you can find some ice that's uh, just starting to gel, mm -hmm. um, or pancake ice we refer to it as, if you can dip into that, that suppresses the sea. And if you got that in, in your back pocket, you can punch north at a pretty good rate of knots um, and not worry about uh, um, sea spray and things like that. Okay. But uh, if it's just that fine temperature where you can't get it, boy, yeah. you're you as a captain are really deeply concerned about icing constantly and you know the winterization it was just brilliant awesome. and you can you can see um, where the tracing is yeah. and you can appreciate that if you've got a piece of steel yeah. or even in your, you're at your home you've got say, heated floors yeah. you got a couple of cold spots on the heated floor <laughs> you know where they right are, you know right? where they are well you can see them on pointy end of the ship the sure. right. you can see where the cold spots were because there's a little bit there's a little bit of ice or snow on on there and right. it's, and uh, and yeah, so it, it, but it worked. It works really well. And the same thing rings true going south. Um, uh, the cooling system inside the ship is is pretty spectacular. And uh, there are some parts of the ship that you think you want to wear a toque mm. when you <laughs> when you when when they're cooling the ship down because it's pretty cold. Um, 
but yeah. You, you mentioned to me um, in a previous chat about the the way the hull and the ship is in terms of different classifications. And yeah, so um, Canada. Um, so um, just in the last, uh, uh, I guess it was from 2017. 2017, I am old polar code was ratified, and the conversation started I think about 2009, where all of the member Arctic states, I think there's eight of them or six of them, um, they, uh, they got together and all the different nations had a classification society associated with each one of their ships. Okay. And as the interest for the Arctic grew, so too did the desire to, um, I'll say, regulate ships moving through the Arctic. Um, and that went, you know, in all of our waters. And um, we, we needed to kind of define what different classification of each ship was. And so as each country had their own, even Canada had their own, uh, they had to come up with a solution. So what they came up with was uh, polar classification one to seven. Okay. One being the most capable ice-breaking ship in the planet. Canada doesn't have any of them. Okay. And seven being the least capable, and but not, not necessarily an icebreaker. Okay. And, and if you're a one to five, you fall within the ice-breaking classification. And then six to seven are just ice strength and hulls. Gotcha. And then what that did was it allowed the countries to say, okay, if you're a six or seven and you're coming through this body of water at this time of year under these ice conditions, you're going to need an escort uh, to keep the environment, you know, from, from an environmental standpoint and, you know, a safety standpoint too, because you don't want anybody to get stuck up in the, sure. up in the Arctic and have to winter over and not be prepared to do something like that. And they still do winter over up there. Really? Um, okay. Scientists do. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Know, there's something wrong with them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can barely handle Really, really excited. We're going to go spend the winter up there and just yeah. going to ice ourselves in and it's going to be great. Right. Was, uh, but fascinating to watch from a distance. Oh, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather be in yeah. this ship watching right. it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, just to say that uh, Harry the Wolf is a five. Uh, but five in a strange way because, um, and it all depends on how, how your glass is filled. Either it's half empty or half full. Okay. So uh, the bow and stern are polar class four. Okay. So really, so really significant, yeah. right? Yeah. And then the midships is a five. Okay. Um, and the midships is a five for a whole long list of reasons. It's you save, save the taxpayers some money. Um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have a midships that's any that's, that's any more significant than that because you don't break ice sideways. Right. Um, you go forward or aft. Right. Um, and, uh, and if you're a good ship driver, you understand to uh, protect your cheeks. Mm. Um, and the cheeks is where, you know, the ice starts or the, the, the steel hull becomes a little bit more vulnerable. When I say a little bit more vulnerable, it is very, the, it's not that vulnerable, mm. right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's still a polar mm -hmm. class five, right? Right, right? And when I say icebreaker, um, it doesn't mean that we're in the ice breaking business, right? right. The ice breaking business is, a, is an actual, the ice breaking is a task um, that's associated with the Canadian Coast Guard and communities need that uh, in order to open up their harbors every year. Um, and that's not something that you could call the Canadian Navy on doing. And you can't count on us to do something like that either because if there's some sort of uh, an emergency someplace or, or humanitarian disaster relief function, we just can't support Canadians that way. And that's why you have a Canadian Coast Guard because that's right. what they're, they're on call. Yeah. They know every year where they're going to be. They advertise every year where they're going to be. And the communities rely on them. And uh, if you tried to uh, task them to do something different, that's just 
the, the impact would be too great and the ripple effect would be quite significant mm -hmm. and you can't rely on the Canadian Navy to do that kind of stuff for you. Yeah. Um, and then uh, that that segues perfectly into talking about this first deployment for HMCS Harry DeWolf um, because it's a circumnavigation of North America but intentionally obviously going up into the into the Arctic and talk to me about why the Navy needs to be in the Arctic. Yeah. Um, well, there's a whole long list of reasons, um, you know, uh, and I, I, I always say that, uh, you know, the, 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 the ships, remember I said at the very beginning of this that Canada seems to be doing do things just at the right time. Yeah. Um, and the timing for these ships to come into service is like right on the window. Right when the window opened, bam, we were there. Mm. Um, and so things that you're starting to see up north is um, that you can't really see um, unless, unless you live there. Um, the Inuit up north are catching fish that aren't indigenous to the area. They're catching different species of fish that are, that are from further south. And so, you know, when we talk about things like climate change, um, climate change is a funny thing. Uh, we were in Pond Inlet, and the people in Pond Inlet were telling me that uh, the, the, the summer was terrible. They're freezing. Um, and ordinarily, they get about three or four weeks of warm weather, and they didn't get any, and they are pretty upset by that. And how cold it was and stuff um, and uh, that that doesn't surprise me because I've been looking at the problem for a lot of years mm -hmm. but um, I would submit that uh, your list some of your listeners would be no no it says on the news it's really warm up there yeah they got, they got a warm day up there uh, and good for them because they could they could have really used about three weeks of warm, of warm temperatures sure. but um, but it's so inconsistent that it's it, it's 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 bothersome right and when you start seeing different species of fish moving further north and there's a series of different countries who are fishing those fish, um, there will naturally be a tendency for folks to want to go and catch the fish that they always catch. Yes. Right? Right. And as these things start to migrate further north, so too will other countries. And just like Canada did in the 90s on the East Coast with the Spanish fishermen, um, they used members of the Canadian Armed Forces and elements of the Canadian Armed Forces to support DFO uh, and fisheries to help regulate what was turning into a real problem. Um, and, uh, and they did. They did it really quite well. And, uh, uh, you know, I can't imagine that the Spanish really were thrilled with it, but uh, with the outcome. But uh, um, that, that, that's, that's what you expect your military to do when you need it, right? right. Um, and as we start operating further north, these ships are specifically designed to operate on the most austere conditions up north, not the you know the more comfortable periods of time where you've got uh, adventure tourism going through and things like that. It's it's meant to operate in the, the dead of winter if it needs to be, but on the shoulders of the navigable season, which is generally somewhere between July and October, and be able to operate throughout the whole season when all this other ship activity is up there, and it's domestic Canada. So what you have is a whole bunch of other government departments that have a mandate to operate up north, but they don't have a platform to operate from. And they don't have the expertise, if they were given their own platform, to be able to do that work. So the Navy is being used to support those types of activities up north, and so many more. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why we're building these ships, and that's why I say it's coming at the right time, because you're just starting to hear these stories of, of those things happening. You're starting to see other countries operating in domestic Canada uh, and kind of pushing the envelope a little bit uh, to try to force the way into domestic Canada 
um, without concurrences. Um, you know, and then we get the concurrences, you know, that diplomacy happens, but um, not without constantly paying attention to what's going on. And so the Canadian Navy, the Canadian Air Force, the uh, Canadian Army, they're all working up there together to collectively not lock down the Arctic, but to have incredible amount of insight in what's happening up there and supporting the other government departments that have a mandate to deliver their responsibilities up there to the best of their ability. And, uh, you know, that was part of our job up north this year. Hey, folks, please join us for our next episode where we will continue our chat with Commander Corey Gleason as he continues his firsthand account of the inaugural deployment of HMCS Harry DeWolf, Canada's first Arctic and offshore patrol vessel and its historic circumnavigation of North America. Please join us for that episode, and please like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our great guests and topics. We hope you have a great day, everyone, and always remember to go bold. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.